0: Today on the Dolby Institute podcast, we're talking with six of the top cinematographers working today about their experiences shooting their very first feature films. Once again, our very good friend, Dolby Institute Fellowship winner, Carlos Lopez Estrada, has brought together yet another all-star panel of Hollywood talent to discuss how they got their start in the industry. Joining Carlos are the cinematographers of projects including Elvis, the L Word, 300, No Man of God, The Creator, and Joker. This is another installment of our Satellite Sessions series, recorded as live webinars, which we're bringing to you in partnership with Anti-Gravity Academy and the Coalition of Asian Pacifics and Entertainment. This episode is also co-presented by ShotDeck. We are once again extremely proud to bring these conversations to you, filled with real-world advice as well as the origin stories behind each of these cinematographers, all with the aim to provide essential knowledge for navigating the film industry as an emerging artist yourself. Take it away, Carlos. Hello,
1: hello. Nice to see you all. Uh, Thank you for continuing to show up to these. It's amazing to see so many of you. Uh, my name is Carlos Lopez Estrada. I'm a filmmaker. I'm the founder of Anti Gravity Academy. We are a production company established a little, little less than a year ago, with the main focus of supporting emerging filmmakers in film and television and beyond. In addition to hosting these monthly conversations, we're going to be launching a couple of other initiatives, like some mentorship opportunities and an incubator for first-time filmmakers. So if you don't already do so, please make sure to add us on Instagram at Antigravity Academy and stay connected to learn about all of these cool initiatives that are coming up. Uh, Quickly about satellite sessions. If you've shown up to one before, you know this. But if this is your first time, just so you know what you've shown up to. Uh, These are free monthly conversations That we host with incredibly exciting figures from the film and the tv universe we've had previous conversations featuring amazing groups of directors producers writers agents and managers so if you have missed any of them or if you want to see this one again or if you want to share it with your friends please let them know that they're going to become available to stream via the dolby institute they are going to be posting them as both videos on their youtube channel and podcasts so Please uh, follow any of us to figure out how to get there. But all that being said about our panel today, cinematography, as you know, goes way, way beyond figuring out how to shoot a scene or movie beautifully. Cinematographers together with the directors and with the writers of a film are also the authors of the story. They are responsible for every image, for every frame every message that needs to be communicated in order to communicate the story. And we're very lucky to have today six incredible cinematographers talking about the beginning of their journeys and how their early projects help shape their filmmaking voice. So please join me in welcoming Mandy Walker. She is an Australian-born, Oscar and BAFTA-nominated cinematographer. She has lensed films such as Elvis, Mulan, Hidden Figures, and Australia. In 2022, she was named the ACS Cinematographer of the Year and has been inducted to the ACS Hall of Fame. She is currently in production of Disney's Snow White, set to come out in 2024. Welcome, Mandy. Thank you for joining
2: us. Hi, everybody. Hi. Thank you for having me.
1: Next, we have Larry Fong. He is a Los Angeles-based cinematographer, graduate of the Art Center College of Design. He got his start shooting music videos, including NTV Music Video of the Year, 1991, REM's Losing My Religion. I didn't know you shot that, Larry. It's one of the most videos of all time. Uh, His first studio film, 300, began his long list of collaborations with director Zack Snyder, his work includes Batman versus Superman, Kung Skull Island, uh the Ace ASC Award nominated pilot of Lost, The Tomorrow War, and an upcoming A24 film called Death of a Unicorn. Larry, thank you for coming here. Glad to be uh, here. Lawrence, also Lori, uh Larry, Larry Scher, uh Oscar nominated DP. Sorry, I got I I combined. Larry and Lawrence, and I said Lori. Uh, Larry, share an Oscar nominated DP. He's known for his work on Joker, the Hangover Trilogy, Garden State, Godzilla, King of Monsters, and many, many more. Additionally, to being a cinematographer, he's the founder of Shot Deck, shotdeck.com, which is the world's largest high definition image database, which provides reference inspiration, and education for filmmakers worldwide. They are also co-hosting our panel today. So, Larry, thank you very much for joining us.
3: Great to be here. Thank you.
1: Uh, next, we have Oren Sofer. He's an Israeli-born cinematographer. His most recent film, The Creator, which was shot alongside fellow cinematographer Greg Frazier. His prior feature films have premiered at TIFF and Tribeca Film Festivals. And he has shot award-winning shorts and hundreds of commercials and music videos for Nike, BMW, Mercedes Benz, HBO, Universal Studios, many more. Uh, Oren, thank you.
4: Thanks so much, Carlos. Hi, everybody. Thanks for Um, having me.
1: Sandra Valde Hansen, a graduate from the American Film Institute. She was named one of Variety's 2019 artisan elite up next. She works across TV, documentary, feature films with credits such as the L Word, L Word Generation Q, Plan B, Burn, Motherfucker Burn. That's such a fun title to say out loud. XO, Kitty, and The Summer I Turned Pretty. Originally from a Filipino family in Miami, Florida, her work concentrates on promoting diversity both in front and behind the camera. Sandra, hello. Thank you for being here.
5: Thank you, Carlos, I'm so excited to be here, guys. Hello.
1: And last but not least, we have Karina, Karina Silva. She is a former Olympic level diver, which is amazing, turned into a cinematographer. Her credits include Amber Seely's No Man of God, Beauty Mark, and Elbow Steve, her upcoming film with director Peter Hutchings, which brings me to you, finished filming earlier this year, uh, she has a very unique background as a world-class athlete and that provides a very fresh perspective to all the things she does uh, and we're excited to ask you about it too karina welcome
6: thank you okay. hi everybody
1: uh thank you all for joining we're so lucky to have you all so okay thank you all again to start things off i'd love if we could go around and if you can tell us a little bit you know some some of you may have had this moment recently some of you may have had it not so recently but if you can share with us who is the person responsible for giving you your first movie opportunity and just whatever you think is good for us to know about that moment, what the conversation was like, what the circumstance, how the circumstance came to be. Um, but OK, I am just going to go in order of my Zoom screen. If that's OK. Larry Now, I, Larry, 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 Sherry, I see you smiling. So I'm going to start with you
3: i gave myself my first feature opportunity because i made a film right out of college i didn't go to film school i was an economics major but i got into movies late in college undergraduate and so me and a fellow friend of mine from school who graduated with me he's like let's go make a movie and so we that was basically my film school so we raised the money we wrote the script together he directed it and starred in it i shot it it was the whole film school in one you know one one lump sum and it was amazing and then after that so that that was amazing and it was really worthwhile and I would recommend it to anyone and we raised the money it was about 50 grand and then we had to raise another like 100 the next year to finish it so all in it was about 150 grand from like friends families dentists doctors like that thousand dollar sort of chunks you could get a piece of the movie uh, we did pay them back. We sold the movie and made a little bit of money for them.
1: Is it still? Uh, and can, can no, we it,
3: it? I, I just was talking to Christian, or I work with at shot. And I've been trying. I need to remaster it because it basically exists on like a VHS or like a one-inch, you know, master. And so this was 1992, so it's a long time ago. But the real person was I did a short film with a guy, and this is where you don't really know where it's going to come from. This was maybe three years later because I went back to assisting and that didn't lead to really anything and I met the AD on that film his girlfriend's dad was a film executive who got a chance to make his first movie you know he was in his 60s and he had been a film executive on big movies and he for no real reason it's not like I had a a bunch of experience he gave me an opportunity to shoot like a five million dollar movie in Fabian's Texas which was like a little noirish bank robbery movie called on the border. Um, and it taught me everything. It taught me how to be a professional. It was like, it was, I was terrified. I was literally like, this is I'm way in over my head here. Um, and I don't know why he hired me, but I will always be grateful to him. His name is Bob Mizrowski. Um, and, uh, and he, yeah, he's, he's in large part responsible for me sort of having a career.
1: I'm going to ask you a couple of more specific questions about that experience um but for now let me pass it over to Mandy you're next on on my screen.
2: So I also did not go to film school um and I grew up in Australia and I started straight out of high school as a PA and a runner on a feature film and I always I'm I'm one of those people that knew I wanted to be a cinematographer from from when I was about 14 so i was on a trajectory to get there and uh, i was like when i was on that movie i would go up to the camera department and hang out and say this is what i really want to do if anybody could help me and a couple of them did and and i got jobs on a couple of documentaries and um and i became a loader on feature films and then i was an at first ac And one of the cinematographers I'd been working with, the guy called Ray Argle, was like an indie cinematographer and building his own lights out of fluorescent tubes and stuff like that. And I worked with him for quite a few years assisting him. And then um, he got me to shoot some music videos that he was directing. And then he got the opportunity to direct a feature film called Return Home. And um, I was 25 and he said to me, Mandy I want you to shoot it and I was again as Larry said terrified and um he said I'm going to be there and I'm going to show you what the relationship is between a director and a DP so that's the most important thing I learned from him but he also said I'm not going to tell you what to do I want this to be your your um your job as a cinematographer and so the lighting we're going to talk about it. we're going to have it like I don't I'm not a cinematographer we're going to have a situation where you're going to make those decisions and we're going to get crew around you that can support you which I did I had people around me that were experienced and um I gleaned a lot of information from them but uh then it sort of kept going from there and after that I was you know struggled for a few years, but I stopped assisting and um and it just went on from there. And then I um got a couple of other jobs and it just kept going, kept going. Then I left Australia when I was um after about 12 films or something that I'd done and and then I've been living in the United States for 20 years. So that first job was the one that you know got got me my big break. Uh, and so who trusted me. And and you've been here you're in the States right now, right? No, I'm in Australia right oh, now. Back. My family because there's a strike on and and um so I took this opportunity, but I do live in LA. Yep. Yeah.
1: Makes sense. Makes sense. Uh thank you for sharing that. Uh Karina, you're here next on my on my screen.
6: For me, I actually uh, I had met the director of my first film on a short film that I was shooting. He was the A D. He was helping out a mutual friend. And, uh, I had heard he was shooting a feature and I was like, oh man, I, I'd love to shoot a feature. And, uh, he already had a DP, you know, so I, I couldn't really do much, but, um, two, three months later, you know, all the crew had somehow, you know, dropped out. And, uh, suddenly there was a, there was an opening. So, uh, I told him, look, uh, I'll, uh, I'll do it for free and, um, I'll donate all the lights and the, and the gear and, and the cameras and everything and he was like all right you got the job and uh i you know i was uh operating on a movie at the time and um i didn't have a lot of uh prep time face to face with him so whenever my camera wasn't playing i was in the camera truck facetiming with him going through the script and and really trying to like plan the movie out um
1: and and, what was the name of what was the name of that feature
6: was called beauty mark we made it in 12 days uh for fifty thousand dollars including um post and everything so it was it was pretty amazing yeah
1: amazing um oren i'll come over to you
4: yeah hey everybody um yeah so my first feature as a dp uh i was still in film school uh, it was the summer between uh, junior and senior year, that's third and fourth year, uh, for any listeners who are not American and don't use our silly um, words for describing uh, school years. Uh, and this was actually 10 years ago t- this year. So it was 2013. Um, I had shot the directors, I mean, the director was a friend, we were all friends, we had a good friend group. This was at uh, NYU, New York University, Tisch uh, Film School in New York City, and um, we had direct, we I had shot a bunch of friends third year films, and one of them was um this woman, Marley Rodriguez, who's still a good friend of mine to this day. And in an act of pure arrogance, I think, we we all sort of agreed like, hey, instead of making a senior year film short, let's make a feature this summer in between third year and fourth year. Um, I think the budget was about $100,000. It was raised among dentists and uh, real estate agents, just like Larry mentioned. It's a pretty typical fundraising scheme for uh, indie films. Everybody worked on it for free. I mean, we were all students. Everybody was a film student. Uh, And yeah, we shot for 20 days in upstate New York. And yeah, it was, you know, we none of us knew what we were doing. None of us had been on a feature before. None of us had spent twenty plus days like shooting the same project. And we just, I don't know, ran into the wall, you know, and and burst our head through like the Kool Aid Man. Like we're gonna we're gonna do this, and um, and we did it, you know. I, I can't speak to its quality now, ten years on. I haven't seen it in a while. But what's
1: uh, the what's the name of the film, and is it available?
4: It's called Little Miss Perfect. I am not sure if it's available. It probably shouldn't be, but maybe it is somewhere. <laughs> but uh yeah, so that was that was the first uh the first one. And then um still been doing it ever since. Yeah. Amazing.
1: Uh Sandra, you're next here, and then we'll end with Larry.
5: Yeah, so like some a, a few of us, um, uh, it got started by a short film. I was doing a short film, and the producer of that short film. Uh, we hit it off and uh, she happened to be the line producer uh, for an indie film. She reached out to me and she says, have you ever heard of uh, the director Greg Araki? And, and so I actually had heard of Greg Araki. Um, this was before the internet. I was reading Movie Maker Magazine and Indie Filmmaker Magazine and Greg was all over it. Greg is like one of the Forefront uh directors of queer cinema in the early 90s and his movies has been going to Sundance since like 1987. And so when she said, you know, he's looking for a DP, would you want to put your name in the hat? And my thinking was like, Oh my God, please, please put my name in the hat. There is no way he's gonna hire me, but I just wanna meet him, you know. Um, because you know, Greg's movies are genre bending, um, and crazy and very stylistic and I was you know this kind of goody goody Catholic school girl who did does a, who whose training is in documentary there's no way that this guy is gonna hire me but I was like I just I'm gonna go to this interview and and we'll see what happens and um lo and behold I go to this interview and Greg is not at all what I expected him to be I expected him to be you know a little bit, you know, weird and, you know, dress kind of funky and, but no, he was totally normal. We met on a Starbucks in Kulanga, um and uh, I guess, you know, we hit it off and he hired me and Greg and I have been working ever since then. That movie that he hired me for, is called Kaboom. It is available on, uh, I think on any of the Amazon or wherever you can stream it, it is available. Um, and I owe a lot to Pavlina and Greg, um, and, and Greg actually gave me my, my first TV show too. So he started my feature film, you know, kind of journey and, and then he helped me get into television. So I I owe a lot to Greg Rocky.
1: Thank you, Greg. Uh, Larry, we'll, we'll end this round with you.
7: Um. I have to credit Zack Snyder, too, uh, for my first feature. Um, but but that's also going back to film school because uh, we were in film school together and we were good friends then. And I worked on a shot a lot of his projects way back when. So we were friends through school and started to get work together after school. And then, you know, eventually he got the, the, the movie 300, basically, and he pitched it to me. And um, yeah. What a...
1: What a crazy first
7: film to get. Yeah, that's, that's really a, <laughs> it's a crazy first film. Um, yeah, actually, he gave me the script. and I just kind of read it overnight. and I just thought this is just like massacring this bloody gruesome movie. I'm not sure I want to do a movie like this, you know. And he called me down and said, no, no, no. It's like, I know it reads like a bloody violent thing. And It is violent, but it's really just about the lick of the film. And I said, really? Oh, that's that's awesome because yeah because i wanted you know there's been enough of these kind of warrior films with recently there had been um alexander and um what they call them sword and sandals type movies but he said (laughs) if we could do something like um alexander and the matrix together then that's that's what that's what we should try to do you know the old let's do something no one's done before thing like everyone says but um,
1: Uh, I'll I'll reverse the order for y'all. And if you can think of one thing in that first feature experience that you realize that you like had no idea about, like something where you were just like, oh, shit, like big learning lesson or big. Like, I have no idea what I'm doing moment. Um, th- does anything come to mind? If you also if you had it all figured out, that's fair.
3: I'll jump in
1: yeah yeah please yeah
3: I know it's not reverse order but uh no it's fine no well, please
1: feel feel free to make yeah. the fluid thing
3: I don't think because I was also producing this like film this Captain Jack film that we made kind of like Oren was saying you know basically let's just go make a movie uh and it felt like at least you could sell a feature film as opposed to a short film and then once you know hardest part is getting shooting one day you might as well just keep going for twice the amount and get a whole movie out of it but i had basically been working as a as a loader in a second ac and practicing the wheels in anticipation of going out to ohio to go make this movie with my friend but i had rented the cameras the sr3 had just come out we were one of the first people to get an sr3 we drove and i forgot that we needed power and so then I hired a couple of electricians and we were like, we don't have a generator. So that was an oversight
1: that I that's that a, that's I, a I good I one to that's a good one to forget.
2: The thing that I discovered on my first feature film was that um because I'd just been doing, you know, shooting music videos and, and short films, and then all of a sudden I was on a it wasn't a big movie, but the thing that I realized on that is that my job was not just about shooting the images it was about running a crew and the politics of being a head of department and you know I always say this to people if if you know you're running behind and um you know there's a time uh problem the producer will come out and it'll be the dp the first ad and the director so that's what I learned on that is that as well as having the um responsibility of lighting and camera and storytelling with the director that I was also about running my crew and about that collaboration between the different departments and and how you have to use your pre-production properly to, to get that um, very coherent by the time you shoot. And quick follow-up, how long do
1: you think, how many movies do you think it took you to feel like you had a good handle on that where you were like, okay, I can run a crew and do the mm-hmm. politics and run smooth ship?
2: I think it happened pretty quickly because I ended up I would have similar people on each of my projects going forward you know my crew I tried to hire the same people but also I mean we're always learning things and and then you know it's the jump to a bigger film and then it's a jump to a film with VFX so there's always challenges and learning um, as you go along. So I feel like I'm never not learning as <laughs> yeah. as um, I keep doing one film to the other. But I reckon after two or three movies, I felt very comfortable in that position.
1: Uh, anyone else would like to share a big learning lesson? or? O- yeah, I can,
4: hop, I can hop in, Carlos. Um, yeah, it, I think the, the biggest thing for me going from doing a bunch of student shorts, which we would shoot over the weekends, uh, at film school, because you had classes during the week, yeah, yeah. so you had two or three days to shoot a, a short. And when we did this feature over the summer, that was the first time, uh, like I had mentioned before, that I had done anything longer than a three-day shoot. Uh, so it was the first time I did. It. I, th- I think we shot for nineteen or twenty days, uh, and just learning the pattern of that, the stamina of that was like a huge shock to the system. Like, oh, we're doing, we're doing like ten shorts back to back because you know the feature has a bunch of different looks and different locations so each one is almost like a little short like we're going to do a short at this house and then we're going to do a short at this school and we're going to do a short here and um just keeping up the stamina and getting enough sleep and like figuring out even just scouting a location and planning and then knowing like oh we're going to come back there in a month you know and and we still need to like keep those ideas fresh and keep re- and remember what we talked about and that was that was definitely the biggest thing i remember taking away from that and um after that i did a string of other indies that were all around around 20 day shoots but um the creator of the the film that i have out now was 80 days so that was like a big jump up in terms of shoot days and then like mandy was saying like that was now another huge learning curve of like okay i just quadrupled the length of stamina and shoot that that i that i did uh, prior to this. So like everything is learning. And then, you know, there's DPs on this panel that have shot TV and I haven't shot TV and that scares me like that kind of length of schedule. So I think everything is always just learning how to adapt to those new circumstances and and physically, mentally and, and everything.
1: Yeah. I remember at the end of the second week of my first feature, I just got home and I sat on the bed uh, and my partner at the time after like 10 minutes, just like stood in front of me it's just like hey are are you okay like you haven't moved it looks like you're not breathing you're just like staring into a wall uh is everything okay and i think it's just like my system completely overwhelmed like emotionally and physically uh it's i think it's it's hard to to overstate how big of a jump it is to all of a sudden shoot for weeks and weeks at a time um yeah. anyone else would like to chime in on their uh yeah Sandra,
5: I mean, uh, for me, uh, working with Greg. So Greg is is an is, is an auteur director, and um, a lot of the things I did prior, I would collaborate with the director. We would talk about shots. Greg would storyboard everything, and and when I say storyboard, it wasn't like the fancy storyboards. They were literally like drawings on the uh, margins of the script, um, and we called them Gregolithic. Uh, Because nobody could understand them. But I understood them. And he never strayed from them. Um, And that was like a first thing for me. I actually found it extremely freeing. Because he let me concentrate on lighting. I knew exactly what um, he was looking for. So I could set up the shot. He could go talk to the actors. It was actually... Quite efficient, Um, and it really. Some, you know, some of my friends were like, "Isn't wasn't that like creatively so? You know, not creative for you?" And I said, "No, because I was able to really kind of concentrate on lighting." And and now that Greg and I have worked together for, I know what he likes. He knows what I like. I can now say, "Hey, Greg, you know, what if we try this or what if we try that?" And now sometimes he listens me. Um but it was it was definitely an interesting kind of I don't want to say learning curve uh but it was a, a different way of working which is just what I love about working um with directors in film and in television. I get to learn about so many ways different directors, you know, work and I, you know, then I say, "Oh, I really like how that person works" and then I kind of pick and choose and try to create my like perfect uh process. So, that was my kind of experience.
7: It's uh, craft-wise, the first few films I didn't—I um, felt good about since i had been working with Zach so long. We kind of, you know, are friends. But the the, the thing about stamina, because I was shooting commercials for maybe ten years. You know, commercials that two, three, four days if you're lucky, and then like you guys said that um, the the length of a, of a of a movie that's m- many months, yeah, freaks you out. And <laughs> it's like I think three hundred was sixty days or something. That was oh you know, the concept here's the, the thing that you never learned on commercial the concept of fratter days <laughs> every week was, you know was like we're starting later and later like how do how does that work you know then you're starting at 5 p.m on friday then monday it's back to 7 a.m or whatever and then every week was like that and yeah that that, that was kind of my biggest memory of takeaway from that was is this legal <laughs> <laughs>
1: Hey Larry, and Mandy was talking about sort of like the jump into movies that are heavy VFX, but your first movie was probably the heaviest possible VFX movie that you could ever do. Did, did you feel like you had a good handle of, of it? I know you've been doing commercials and music videos, but
7: still- Yeah, right. Every single shot was a VFX shot in that movie. They're, they weren't all necessarily composites or blue screens, but everything was affected so, so heavily. That look was all VFX, not just the di um but no i've done a lot of vfx in the past and i've always loved vfx as a matter of fact when i was a kid i thought i'd be in vfx somehow well then then it wasn't vfx it was special effects but so i love the process so no that that part was actually pretty easy um the what was really cool is that that when you well we use blue screen not green screen for yeah yeah and um The thing of the this wasn't really questioned, the the, the way I was making the VFX work was every shot I would take my DSLR, put it into the computer and have like a proxy of the the kind of the look and the background that was going to be for that shot or that scene. And I'd make the composite to see if like it was all working. And uh, Zach has moving his head so well that I for any given scene, you know, we could say, where's the sun in the shot? You know, and that would be consistent. With you know, it wasn't. Uh, sometimes people think VFX shots you just do whatever and the VFX fixes it later. and that's how it looks good. They light it later. Sometimes people say that. Um, um, but no, the effects.
1: It's always fun for me. Good to know. Good to know. And Karina, you you had your your first.
6: Yeah, yeah. I mean, I, I was just gonna like say what you know everybody else was kind of saying this the stamina because I am, um, you know, I came from a a, a big budget. Uh, operating background. So I was used to, yeah, you know, Kevin, uh, Harry, um, using really heavy cameras, but I had a grip right next to me, getting ready to like pop it off. You know, there was a lot of time in between setups and, uh, I worked a lot with Peter Berg I, at that time. I had done four features with Pete and those are all like, you know, big zooms, handheld, lots of action. And the, the movie that we made beauty mark, was handheld, but only because we didn't have a dolly or a tripod or anything else. So it just had to be that. And I didn't have any crew to help me. I had a, a, um, you know, a a freshman at NYU that was my gaffer and I had two lights and Keslo had donated the, uh, the original Alexa. I don't know if you remember, but it was like a monster. Um, And we had two of them because they broke all the time and obviously ours broke as well. But uh, I remember it feeling like, you know, it was like a, like a, like a training session, you know, it was 12, 12 days of intense training. There was no union, obviously Um, 16, 18 hour days. There was nothing like a 12 hour day on our shoot and obviously not legal, but it did feel like I had to, you know, I had to stretch every morning because i was just carrying that camera around all day and I, and it took me back to to when i was a diver you know it have to having to push through exhaustion and um perform essentially you know and mentally perform as well which is which is difficult
1: um a follow up for whoever wants to answer don't feel like we have to go around if just if you have a story to share but in terms cuz you've talked a lot about the practical matters of like schedule and you know vfx and the physicality of it but in terms of storytelling did any of you feel like there was a big learning curve or like a moment where like maybe shooting coverage or how to interpret a scene or was there anything storytelling driven that was uh uh, like a big aha moment in your first couple of features you can also say no
2: i can jump in because i know a couple people have asked in the chat about um, us finding our um, style,
1: yeah.
2: And I just wanted to comment on that because it, for me, what I learned also from working with other DPs is that um, every film is different, and so it's 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 discovering the style of that story and the the style of the story that the direct, the director wants to tell and how you get into their head. And like Sandra was saying. All directors are really different and you we have to be um, chameleons in a way where in the first couple of weeks of prep you've got to work out how the director wants to work with you. Like are they going to storyboard any everything? Are they going to expect you to storyboard or they hate storyboards and you're going to just have to work on the fly when you get to a set? So I think that that's why pre-production is so important because that's where you work out the style of the photography. It's going to work with the story but also the budget and the schedule and the people that you're collaborating with and and so in that sense um i think that that is a big part of our job that we that i learned pretty quickly too is that i can't do what i did on the last movie cuz that's a different film you know and and um yeah so i don't i would like to say that i don't have a particular style of my photography um in that every every movie is different and and i like that about my job
6: Yeah, that's true. Um, I, I kind of feel the same way, you know? Um, and one thing that I did learn early on was to trust my gut. You know, I, um, I really, when I was, when I was younger, I wanted to do what the, I thought the director wanted me to do, um, whether it be voicing my opinions or, you know, giving my ideas. But when I learned that what I feel and, and what I think, um, is, is appropriate for the moment, that's when I kind of unleashed this freedom that I had, whether it be in operating or, you know, speaking up um, or just kind of designing the look of the film. Uh, it, it was always, maybe it wasn't right, but at least that inspired something else, you know, and it became like a conversation that you could, you could build on versus holding back and Kind of censoring yourself a little bit, you know. So that's something that I that I learned in my in one of my earlier days in first feature.
4: I have something, Carlos. I can jump in on. Please, uh, please. I I just saw a question from uh, Ezra about uh, de- elaborate on developing the style in pre production, and and Mandy was just talking about pre pro as well, yeah, and yeah. It, it did remind me of of actually something on on that first feature, which is, um, in in pre production on that film, working with with Marley the director it was the first time that I had done a project where we actually really sat down and and created an evolving look for the project that was based on the story. So prior shorts and stuff that I had done, I I guess, I don't know, we never really thought about them in that way. Like you have a short, it's 10 pages, maybe 12. There's a few scenes, um, you know, there's a certain visual look and approach to that that you figure out and you shot list it and go do it. But on a feature, it was the, it was the first time that we actually sat and were like all right how can the visual language evolve and and how does that support the storytelling as the characters like evolve and grow and change throughout the film and i mean in hindsight like i think we probably were were pretty heavy handed with it like we were like, the movie's going to start with warm colors and then it's going to go cold when things get dark and then it's going to go back to warm again. And like, it's, it's a per- kind of on the nose evolution. And we changed the the visual style. Like we went from sticks to handheld and then back to sticks and, and that kind of thing. Like, but, but it was, it was interesting and cool to think about that for the first time and track it. And then obviously you shoot out of order. So it it becomes the mental puzzle of like, all right, what scene are we shooting now? Is it is it page sixty or is it page ten? Because the visual style and the visual approach that we've created for the film has to be consistent, so that when it's edited together, the story flows and the visuals support that story. So, yeah, that was a really interesting um, learning experience on that film that I've definitely taken and, and maybe mellowed a little bit over time and gotten a little more subtle with it. But uh, yeah, it was it was definitely a um, an interesting part of that of that experience.
1: Now that you have all had experience on narrative filmmaking, when you get to work with film with other filmmakers, directors or beyond who are just starting their journeys, uh, what how do you normally approach that collaboration? Like when you have a director who's just starting and going through this curve that you went through before, Is there anything specific that you do to try to make sure that that collaboration is successful and that you're able to communicate well and, you know, start on a job effectively? A
5: lot of my feature, indie feature kind of journey has always been with first-time directors. And I absolutely loved it because a lot of times first-time directors come with like fresh ideas and are really excited about the project and Um, ultimately, I I truly believe that the director and the VP can really set the tone for a set. And if you have a director who's really excited, then I get really excited, and then the whole crew gets really excited. I mean, we really do set the tone. But some of the things, um, some of the directors have even said this to me, like, I start by asking, like, how do you work? You know, what is your process? Um, I've met with some directors who are always like, you know, because I don't really feel that a director needs to come to me and say, Sandra, this needs to be shot on a 24 millimeter lens, you know, with this framing, you know, that's cool if a director can do that, because I can geek out with directors about cameras and all that. However, there are a lot of directors who don't necessarily know the technical words. And my feeling is you don't have to, you don't. That's what we're here for. Us as cinematographers, we're here to basically take your vision and translate it into the technical. So if you could provide anything to me, just if you know exactly what you want, then communicate it to me, whether it's words, sometimes it's a piece of music, sometimes it's like a piece of art or a reference from another movie, anything like that is enough for me. Like if you even tell me about feeling like, Sandra, this scene is about loneliness, and then I then we talk about okay, let's talk about how do we visualize loneliness, and then and that then that leads into creating that visual language that Oren is talking about. You know, like all you have to do is know what you want, and you can communicate it any way that you like because we're here to translate it, and we'll continue asking questions because. Again, like Mandy said earlier, we want to get inside directors' heads yeah. and, and create what they are envisioning.
1: Oh, that's beautiful. Uh, Larry, you had, you had a thought there too? I mean,
3: Sandra kind of said it all. I mean, I, I, it was a basically a lot of the overlap. It's basically they don't need to know anything about cinematography to be a good director. Often they're a writer, which helps. They've already, cons- they've already written a lot that has expressed their vision. But it's, it's basically that. It's like I try to sit down and, and first find out how much time they have. Sometimes directors are, are hard to get time with, right? So, but let's just say the best case scenario, you say, let's let's go through the script. And it is a lot of questions. It's just, sometimes it's like, well, how did this, this come up? why did you write this scene? What does this scene mean in the movie? and often I'll come up with questions you know why is this scene what's the objective of this scene what's like the event that this scene is Mm -hmm. you know it might be emotions it might be events it might be like what and then that can sort of then you go okay and if they are interested and often they are it's like okay well then this is how I would translate that or help you translate that into visual language and then they do they get excited because now they're learning something new that maybe they intuitively have sensed from watching enough movies. But now it's like, oh, I get it. What is the difference between a long lens and a wide lens and emotionally how it affects the audience and handheld versus sticks and and all the camera movement versus nothing. And then it's just, if we could get all the way through the script, my objective is it's gonna get hectic. You're gonna need to focus 90% of your energy on the actors, all things being equal. And I want, whether, no matter what, at the end of this process, for you to feel like I can take as much of the burden as possible off your shoulders so you can concentrate on all the other things, but this will still feel 100% like your vision. It's not like I've taken over your vision, I've just now taken all the things that we've talked about, things that you have expressed in whatever way you can express them, and then use the skill as a cinematographer to translate them into visual language but it's still gonna be your movie. you know. I did Garden State, I sat with Zach Braff for six hours. That was it. That was our entire prep, six hours, Crazy. Two, two page turns. And then he's like, I got this kid who's in art school. He can, write, he can draw storyboards if you wanna do storyboards. I don't even like storyboards, but I was like, I don't know, I got time. I'm here for a couple more weeks of prep. And I storyboarded the whole movie. And in a way it was like, it was easy because it was all my storyboards. And we just executed them. But it was still very much Zach's vision. I never felt like it was it was still his movie because he had spit out whatever was important. And the rest was like I could then infer from the conversation.
1: Yeah. Our our audience today and the people who are going to be watching this streaming later is mostly comprised of emerging filmmakers. Uh, I imagine many of them today are emerging cinematographers. Uh, Not so much like advice for how to get your first projects that is a little bit more practical, but in terms of do you have any advice for how an emerging cinematographer can work on starting to develop their voice and become a little bit more ready for narrative work for making the jump between, you know, shorts and features or commercials and music videos to features. But uh, anything that comes to mind for tackling feature storytelling
4: yeah i think i i can i can jump in here because th- this is something that um comes up a lot when when i'm talking to younger filmmakers and to me there's there's one really important thing that everybody i think should do um and 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 i would say needs to do in order to, to build that that baseline and it's it's just watch movies and and study film and because directors speak film language like every time you work with a director they're, they're going to pull out references and they're going to say oh like that shot in this movie or this and this and this because directors pretty much all watch a ton of movies and are inspired by movies and are, are are influenced by that in their own storytelling and their own writing and their own directing and so if you as a cinematographer are not able to like talk that same language with them in the narrative world and talk about the language of storytelling and visual storytelling and, and film language and film history it it can be hard to connect with directors on that level because you're going to miss like a big part of the conversation and so i think that that's that's the best way or at least one thing that everybody can do that doesn't cost anything you know besides the rental cost on a streaming service or or the your local video store which is what i did um or, you know, a shot deck uh, subscription, but uh, it's, 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 I think it's, that's like a really important thing. And the weird thing is, is I bump into a lot of people who don't watch movies, like specifically DPs. Um, who are like, I don't have time of uh, this and this. And I, I, you know, I can't make time for it. Hmm. And I think it is worth making time uh, for that, especially when you're starting out, because you need to build that foundation um, of film language or else you're, 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 you're going to have a hard time, you um, understanding narrative storytelling understanding beats understanding um even just even just communicating with the director so yeah yeah, that's that's a big thing I would say
3: I'll just jump on that only there's a reason shot that literally came to be was because of that like it was something I could do when I wasn't working which was most of the time and I was like I could just break down a movie and break it down literally to understand the filmmaking so I could see the coverage I could see the pieces that took that put together this oh how are they doing training day I'll break down every single driving shot so I can understand the choices and it's not until you break it down that you're like oh I see every single one's different this one's from outside through the glass this one's from inside back seat oh and why why are they making the choices there what's going on in the scene at this point point? and it's amazing it's free first of all and you can do it on your own and you can do it any day so it's like it's your own film education that's ongoing by watching movies and understanding how they're made and you'll be amazed when you start to like dissect them you'll notice editing you'll notice sound design you'll notice all these choices that the director and the rest of the filmmakers have made and it's and you could do it today you can do it any every day of the week and it's you don't need permission or money to do it outside of like a subscription to Netflix or wherever
2: can I just uh, say one other thing, too, please, is, please. Uh, is to be on, listen to these panels and listen to people like us that have had experience. But also there's American Cinematographer magazine and they have interviews online, too. And listen about other cinematographers talking about how they achieve certain things and why, I think, is also really good education.
1: Yeah. The, uh, well, thank you all for doing this, because I I know that it's invaluable to all the people who are watching. Uh, OK, I have some quick individual questions. Um, You know, don't want to rush any of you, but I'll encourage you to just keep it a little brief so that we can get through all of these and then the audience questions. But I'll just go in this order. Um, Mandy, you kind of described this about yourself, but you said you like to think of your style as being, you know, not necessarily one particular style and being able to um, adapt yourself to the project and the filmmaker that you're working with. Is there anything that when you first get a script, you first get a job, you're like, you know, nice to meet you. Here's the movie that we're making. What's like the first thing that you do to begin to find that heart of the movie?
2: Um, I think it's kind of what we've been saying earlier is when I first read a script, I really try and just read it as a story <laughs> and not start thinking of, of, of the cinematography yet until I've spoken to the director. And then, you know, like Larry was saying, one of the first things I try and do is have time with them to go through and talk about story and, and then talk about how they want to work with me and how they feel comfortable and what they need from me. Do they need me to do storyboards? Do they need me to go out and um, find movies that are relevant to this genre or whatever? And then... I think it's really also important that we haven't talked about is to collaborate with the other departments. And I try and do that super early. Is that once the director and I've spoken, whether we do it with the director in a group, but you have to be, for the visual language to work, you all have to be on the same page, which is the art department, the costume, the makeup, the VFX, the special effects. And that is a really important thing that I try and do very early so that if we're testing colors or an idea that I have a lighting idea that it's going to work with what the textures and the and the um, elements that are going to be in the frame and the cut and you know, just all that stuff. And more and more, and I'm sure everybody's in this same situation, I have to check in with VFX super early because they are on the film before me, same as a production designer. So as soon as I can start having conversations with them, the better, because otherwise things can go off and previews can be done without you being involved and and um I think that it's it's really important that that collaboration starts the conversation starts really early
1: uh that's great great advice uh Karina I'll go next over to you you talked about being a camera op and I know you opt in you know huge TV shows Mandalorian movies uh, tons of movies Etc what do you think are some pros and cons of starting your career as a dp crewing in positions uh you know G-E or camera like
6: yeah i mean for me I, it was kind of a means to an end you know i when i graduated from ucla i i wanted to be a dp you know similar to mandy i knew i wanted to be a dp when i was 14 years old um i saw a movie that changed my life and i just i knew that that was my my career so once i graduated um i shot anything and everything that I could um, but at the same time I was paing on sets so kind of like Oren was saying the the weekends were for filming right <laughs> and then during the week I was a PA or I was a utility and I kind of worked my way up to camera operator but even when I was operating I was still shooting you know the the projects that I was shooting got progressively better um but uh i mean being on set i think is the best education you can have because as an operator you're there with the dp talking about blocking talking about you know where the actor should go where the lighting is you know and why it's there um why the camera moves um versus it not moving at all or one camera is is doing one thing and the other camera has to do another thing so it's like a you know, it's, it's learning to to shoot with multiple cameras or single camera and knowing when to do what you're also working with the grips very closely. So you learn about the grip department. You're working with the gaffer as well. You know, you, you get so much exposure. Um, to me, that's how I I learned the most. I went to film school. I didn't know anything. I graduated and I was like, Oh God, what, what did I learn apart from like what an F-stop was? And, um, yeah, being on set really taught me a lot and, and working with DPs, I almost kind of miss working with other DPs because, uh, you know, once you once you start shooting consistently, you really just, it's kind of just you, you know, and, you, and it was, I remember, you know, working with, with Tobias Schliesler a lot and and it was, it was really cool to see, you know, the way his thought process worked and, you know, what I would do differently. I would do that all the time. Like I would be like, oh yeah, no, I would never do that. Or that's a little too bright or no, this is a little too this, you know? And I would like do like mental notes in my head just as like a, uh, you know, putting it in my Rolodex as like, you know, this is what I could do one day maybe.
4: Amazing. Uh, but, you know, what was the movie When that you saw at 14?
6: Oh, it was called The Constant Gardener. And oh. uh, the power of that message, re- I didn't, Realized the power of film until I saw that that movie and you know how they were testing pharmaceuticals in 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 Africa on these poor people. I was just blown away at the time, and I just uh, I was like, wow, that's what I want to do.
4: It's amazing. That movie's a masterpiece. I love that movie.
1: <laughs> Larry Larry Fong. Um, I remember a long time ago we got to work in a commercial together. And you kept telling me that you really wanted... You've been working on all these big movies and you really wanted to make an indie. Um, And it seems like, unless I'm wrong, that you were making these big movies for a little while, but you, it seems like recently you've gotten a chance to do some slightly more intimate movies. Uh, and you shot this... I don't know how big your A24 movie, Death of a Unicorn, was, but it seems that like you got a little bit of a chance to, to uh, step back into the indie world. Is there anything... That you that that you learned that experience was it fun. Was it challenging? Uh, was it all of the above?
7: Grass is always greener, right? So I wonder if I was just kind of felt like I was lost in the shuffle of these big movies. I missed, you know, being more hands-on. Um, but it's not always the case with a big movie. Um, but yes, doing a eight twenty-four film was awesome and eye-opening. And the budget was about a tenth of what I'm used to. <laughs> but it was fantastic. It, uh, you got everything I wanted out of it that I, I hope to get, which was um, not getting lost in the shuffle, being very involved from doing things like drawing the storyboards to doing the shot listing, you know, uh, every day after, you know, prep, after everyone's gone home, go to the stage with the director and get out the iPhone and get out Artemis and and plan the shots, you know, visually, um, making little movies and, and seeing if it all works. And you know being that close to the director because let's be honest like and sometimes when you do a big movie like uh there's three storyboard artists right and then you you get on the movie and then there's walls of storyboards and said look that's what you're gonna do and you're like what do i get to say in any of this right sometimes that happens i may be exaggerating but does i'm sure all of you guys have experienced that where it's like wow I got to, do i get to choose any of the angles or the lenses or you know the shots um so, so i got to do a lot of that and and it was like the old days and um the director even though he was first time director like you're talking about he was um so prepared had all the references um was willing to put in the time and effort and that's that's saying a lot i might be saying things that are obvious to those of you that do indies but but when you do a big movie sometimes you do get lost in the shuffle as far as not choosing the shots not choosing not choosing a lot of things um and also, not spending a lot of time with the director. I found it with big movies; they're they're busy with the studio, with the big name actors, and they. I did a movie where the director hardly wanted to talk to me at all, <laughs> you know. <laughs> and so, you know, to to do a movie where the director's calling me constantly and saying, "Do you want to stay late? Do you want to talk on the weekend?" You know, a, a, a couple of years before, I would have thought, "Wait, do I get paid for that? Like, what? That's this is my time." You know, it's like it, it was the best thing ever. I can think of a better way, you know, to spend uh my spare time in the weekends so that we can make this film which like a labor, which like a labor of love, you know, um super cool. I'm very excited for it.
1: Oh, I can't wait to see it. Um Oren, over to you. Is there anything that you would want to share just in terms of how you collaborated with Greg Frazier on
4: the creator? Yeah, for sure. Um I mean, I won't get into the the, the boring details cause there, there's, you can find that info somewhere else. But w- what I will say about it is that um, I wish, I wish we did that more. Uh, I wish DPs could collaborate with each other more because it was such a beautiful thing. Like it was, um, it was, DP can be a very lonely job. Like we're surrounded by crew and 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 obviously we have close relationships with our department heads and with our director. And, um, you know, with other department heads or, or, or at the very least close working relationships, but the job of the DP can sometimes be very solo. Like it can be very isolating. Like there's a lot that kind of rests on your shoulders um, and a lot of responsibilities that you, and I'm not just talking about division of physical labor. It's, it's mental. It's, it's, I mean, it's kind of similar to the job of the director. It like it can be very lonely um, and you have to be confident and at one with your choices and your decisions and and having another person just to like bounce ideas off of or share experiences. Like, you know, I've done scrappier indie shoots that Greg hasn't been in that world for a while. Greg has done big uh, studio features that I haven't been in that world, like sharing each other's uh, pulling from each person's experience. Um, but also just bouncing ideas and pulling from each person's taste and each person's perspective um, was really special and really amazing to, you know, like make a choice, make a creative choice on set and then not have to sit with it. Like I have somebody else looking at it who can say, Oh yeah, that was a good choice. Like I, I, I that choice and I wasn't there. So I'm not emotionally invested in it. Like I'm just kind of watching it from afar and vice versa. Like there's was something really beautiful about that. And I, um, I know that on some TV shows that that collaboration exists where there's multiple DPs, but they're not sequestered into episodes anymore. There's a lot more overlap and there's a lot more collaboration. Um, and yeah, I just, I hope we could see more of that. It, it's a really beautiful thing. And I i would, I would encourage it. Um, of course you have to be on the same page. It doesn't work if, if you're not simpatico, but uh, once you pass that barrier, it, it can be really, really fruitful. And um, foster like even more creativity and and good things so
1: yeah uh Larry sure um you've talked a lot about Sha deck how you, why you started it how has the process of bringing this amazing thing to life affected your work as a cinematography as a cinematographer and whether it is like creatively but also community wise like I I imagine or I can tell just from here you talk about it that is the kind of thing that you did for good reasons and then it pays back in ways that you maybe you didn't even expect it so just curious to see how uh, it's it's affected your journey
3: yeah i got a funny story about it, it involves Zorin but i'll get to that but yeah so i built it because i wanted it to exist in large part because i just was like this is th- this thing that i'm doing sort of really manually i wish this i wish it was like keyworded and scalable and and then it just became a real real labor of love I I genuinely love doing it but it's it's time and it's and but at my heart I still like my biggest thing is still I'm a shooter and you know I sometimes direct and stuff but the funny part about it because it's like I do get and I love it I love people coming up and saying I love shot deck and thank you for shot deck but I had lunch with shot with Oren at a place in Santa Monica recently, and I was wearing a Shot Deck hat, and and some guys were like, "Hey, you work for Shot Deck?" And I'm like, "Yeah, man, I created it." And the guys like, "Oh my god!" And I go, "I got some hats and whatever." I go to me and Oren go to sit down, and then they come over and they're like, they like, what are you doing?" They're like, "Oh, we have a production company, you know, music videos and commercials and stuff." And I'm like, "Oh, well, this is Oren so for you probably." And they're like, "Oh yeah, we follow you on the gram or whatever." And then they're like, "We should do something." And I'm sitting there going, "I'm a DP too. I'm available." <laughs> like, like they just look straight through me. Like I was like, I, "I, I'm like, I actually do shoot too." Like it was like just straight through. They're like, "Shot that guy. This is a DP we got here. We could talk to him." And so I went, "Oh, maybe it's crossing over where suddenly they forget I still make movies for a living." So that that was like a, a, a it's 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 happened enough that I'm like going, "Wait a second i gotta make sure people still know i make i shoot movies
4: you're multi <laughs> you're gonna remind them next year uh larry you have you have a you have a, a little movie coming out i think people will remember
3: <laughs> but yeah um, that was but that's uh, but 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 it's cool because it's also like oh that's nice to hear and i love when well, i love more than anything hearing people that it's valuable to listen i'm prepping a movie right now and i use it every single moment of of every part of the of the day with with the director i'm working with so i'm i'm like this is a reference nobody will know but it's like hair club for men it's like i'm not just the owner i also am a user And the guy shows that he (laughs) used to be bald that's me with shot there
1: uh now you created a a wonderful wonderful thing (laughs) uh sandra quick question for you i know that across your work film tv documentary You've really spoken about the importance of diversity on and off screen. You're an advocate for it. How does story influence the work that you take on, and and how does a DP behind the the camera, obviously in hiring, but how does it? How can a DP impact uh, diversity both front and behind?
5: Um. Wow. Okay. So All right, um, that was
1: like a ten part question.
5: Yeah. Um. I'll try to do it quick. So as far as story goes i mean story is absolutely first and foremost um to me um i mean that's is we're, that's why we're here we're all fil- we're all filmmakers we're all visual storytellers but um just in the past few years um it has become actually one of my uh things that i i want to do stories that are about diverse voices so i told this to my agents and i've looked, I look all around uh, for whether it's television or movies, stories that, uh, because I think it's really important to me as a filmmaker to work on any of these, you know, projects that feature kind of underrepresented voices. But when I say story, I don't, I mean, yes, I'll work on a story that's from a particular group, but a lot of the things that I do are universal stories. Because I think the most important thing that we have to do in the media right now is tell universal stories just with different faces because we all experience love and loneliness and, and all of that. And, and I think we can all connect with each other. We don't all have to look like you know one singular face, right? Um, so that's, that's really important uh, to me in terms of the stories that I be part of. And then I, it's really important to me in terms of representation uh, behind the camera um, because then I think in your question, right? it's like, how does it affect what's on screen? Is that kind of where you were? Yeah, yeah, yeah. And I think it comes down to comfort. like on the l word uh, generation q, um you know, which a uh, television show uh, was the the legacy um uh, the when when the the legacy show came out. um so on the l word generation Q, the showrunners, it was really important to the showrunners that everybody behind the camera that we all try to hire as diverse as possible from all different walks of life. We wanted it to basically our behind the camera look like the world. So, you know, it, it didn't matter. We wanted it to be as multi. Oh, whoa. There's a light.
1: There's a lighting cue in here. <laughs> I'm, I'm borrowing yeah. this meeting room and the lights. Yeah. Anyway, that was dramatic. Thank
5: you. Um, but what was interesting is when we would have directors or actors, you know, come on the set. They would see the crew, and the crew would be like every, like all walks of life, different people. And there was like a comfort because it felt like a family, right? It didn't. When you came on set, everybody didn't look like one singular person. It looked like you know the world, and and so I think that I think is the most why. I mean, besides, I mean, there are. There are so many of us in filmmaking, right? There's, you know, filmmakers from all over the world, with from many different races and genders and everything, and we all have a voice, right? And so we have to give the ability to give that voice, but then also it creates a comfort level, which then affects the actors and all of the workers. And I think you kind of just, as an audience, you know, you may not, you know, it. There's just like a subconscious thing; you'll feel the love. So that's
1: that's oh, thank you. That, that was beautiful. Thank you. Okay, we're gonna move on to our last 15 minutes, and these are gonna be questions from the audience. I encourage you all to it, this. These are it's a challenging part of the night because all these questions are so thoughtful, and you could probably answer these each in like an hour because they're deep. But I'll encourage you to just keep it short so that we can get as many as we can. I'm going to ask them quick, too. You all talked a lot about storyboards, but very little about camera movement. Any tips, resources, or like quick little cheats for how to get better uh, figuring out where and how to move the camera?
4: Watch Watch Steven Spielberg's entire filmography, and, and you'll learn how to move the camera. Good, good answer. Watch it with the sound off. Just look at the images and look at the movement and the editing. It's what Larry was saying before. That's, that's the best way to study. Spielberg sound off. Uh, anything else?
1: I, I'm i not a DP, but someone in, in film school recommended this DVD set called Hollywood Camera Work. Are you, are you familiar with it?
4: No, that's not the Jean-Claude Van Damme thing, is it? <laughs> no,
1: uh, no. It's yeah, software, right? It's it, it used to be a DVD set, like six DVDs, like thick, thick. Uh, And I think now they you can rent like each episode or each volume. You can stream it for a couple of dollars. It's like relatively inexpensive. Uh, It's a little dated because the CG models are like, you know, 15 years old. But it does it like breaks down shots and movement and different types of of coverage that you can do. So I don't know. Maybe if you're curious, uh, something to look into. Okay, but these questions are not for Uh, me. Can I just say something
2: else about that? Is, yes please. Uh, I think like we've talked about also in this panel is that you've got to think of a reason to move the camera. It has to be um about storytelling and the drama and so when you are moving the camera it's it's why and you've got to think about that and sometimes it comes from intuition or you know something you've planned to heighten emotion at a certain time or when to not move the camera is also just as important. Yeah. I just want throw that all in uh.
1: Great. Next one we have for those of us who did not go to film school, any advice on networking and or getting technical? I guess being a status one, but yeah, networking or getting technical knowledge that is not film school and watching movies.
6: I for me, what worked was um go go to live shows and uh, offer to musicians to shoot their music video because they all want it. And, you know, music videos are super creative. Um, they're also, you know, super draining. I, I don't yeah. love music videos personally, but I did do a lot of them because it was a way to help out a band that would that would help me learn what not to do most of the time, really. Um, so yeah, musicians are a good uh, a good kind of resource for that because they're poor and they need Content.
7: <laughs> I, I agree with that was, as far as the music video thing. I mean, my career started probably 20 years earlier than you, Karina. But I mean, that was before the internet, and that was when you literally had to pound the pavement and hit the phones. So I would I would make phone calls and go to production companies, knock on the door and go in and ask for a meeting and with the my reel on VHS or three-quarter inch. And, and that that's how I started working. And that, that was for many years until commercial things started so um Karina's right like i think all of you have done music videos um eventually you'll find someone who needs a music video i mean i was lucky in the 90s late 80s when it was kind of the heyday and mtv yeah before the labels and et cetera caught on <laughs> yeah, because we could do whatever we wanted you know and it's a little more involved now with the big bunch of things in the labels but back then you could you could get away with murder and, and try be very experimental But I think even today, you could be really experimental if you you were able to get the right project. Any things that newer DPs
1: should avoid? Something that you've noticed that DPs who are getting into the business that do constantly that you're like, maybe think about that twice.
4: I can jump in again. I I think... It's funny cause this is maybe contradictory to everything that, that a lot of us have been saying already, which is like study films and, and look, look to the past and all that. But I think there's also a risk for younger DPs to constantly be imitating, um, like something trendy or a certain look or, or, um, you know, doing something just because you see other people doing it. Like, I do think that it's more important, even though, uh, studying other cinematography and other cinematographers work is, is helpful to build your own. In addition to that, it is still like important to to do the things that you're interested in and that you're attracted to and not feel like you have to chase trends or something like that. And it can get, it can be very tempting to do that because on Instagram we all, the algorithm decides what to show us and, um and, and it shows us trends. So yeah, I think that can be very tempting, but I think it's, it's a, Yeah, it's tricky because if you fall short of accomplishing like, oh, I I haven't managed to achieve that or or do that look, then then, you know, you might be extra hard on yourself as opposed to focusing on finding your own voice as an artist. Um, So, yeah,
1: that's that's nice. Uh, When you, you know, DPs work a lot and often without a lot of breaks, do you all have any tips for making sure that you're in a good place mental health wise and health wise any tips for just dps who are working a lot and just need a little bit of self-care try Try to take time off
3: (laughs) it's like it's hard sometimes you're in a rhythm of like just taking everything because you feel like you'll never get another chance Uh, try not to go back to back as much as I did when I was younger. I try to, I respect sleep way more than I used to. It's like, I felt like work smarter, not hard, like not whatever the, that expression is. Like, I just think I, I was I was like, I almost felt like I had to punish myself to feel like I was working hard enough for it to be good or that felt like I really gave it everything. And I could still give it everything, but respect my like health a little bit more. That's only come in the last five years, so it took me a while.
1: Uh, What about tips for lighting? How do you become a master lighting person? Uh, You can answer in 20 seconds.
2: Can I jump in?
1: Of course. I'm going
2: to say when you have ideas, is test them. Like even on a small scale use your pre-production to test your ideas because you don't want to turn up on set with some complicated idea that is not working. And I'd try and never be in that, that position. So I would say using your pre-production and testing is really important. I agree. Can, can I,
0: can please, I
5: say something? Please, please. To, um, watch light. I mean, look at lights in the window. What, you know, uh, a street light, anything that, you know, just watch how light works um and you'll discover so many things that way
1: is there anything that each of you has not shot that you're just like dying to shoot and it could be you know a type of movie a genre that you haven't gotten to work in but it can also be like a chase scene on jet skis or like a hot dog eating competition or just anything that you're just like i would love to do this before i die
6: mafia anything with the mafia um, I guess, 70s and backwards or even 80s. I'll do 80s backwards. Um, any, anything with mafia would be my dream.
1: Just watch your uh, inbox tomorrow. is going to have 700 mafia scripts. <laughs>
4: Good. Uh, Oren. Musical. Yeah, like Chicago style cabaret, like something a little edgy, but still like classic with... Staged uh, choreography and all of that, but but with a little grit, something something like that. I feel like I'm soliciting a specific project out there, but I'm not, <laughs> but yeah, um, mus- I love musicals. I've always loved musicals, so yeah, that's that's one that's on the list for sure. One day, uh, Sandra.
5: Oh my God! Oren stole my answer. It's
1: musicals. <laughs> I'm cool. so sorry. I can. I, I love can musicals. Co- you can co-dp all the musicals. We, we
5: can do it. We can do we can. it together. Two yes. heads, two heads. Perfect. Yeah. Great used to
1: go Larry sure um
3: sports film like a great sports film like Hoosiers or
1: any particular you know.
3: sport it could I mean I feel like there's never been a great basketball movie a, a college basketball movie but That's I don't know
1: controversial opinion
3: love it yeah yeah I mean will you name it who I don't know it's not blue <laughs> chips
1: <laughs> uh Larry Fong
7: um, I've always been interested in you know space travel and outer space and other planets and stuff, but there's been so many good movies on that in the last few years, you know, at least one a year. So I don't, I don't know if I can top any of that, but it seemed like that would be a fun thing. Uh, Mandy?
2: um, I would love to shoot a cool action movie like Bond. That's, like, been my dream. It's never popped up, but in in my... um experience or, or opportunity so something like that i would love to do
3: i see
1: that in your I hope you get to do it soon. <laughs> can't wait to see it okay and very last one one uh piece of film or tv that you've seen recently that has really inspired you and you feel like other people listening should watch i'll just go reverse order mandy
2: um you know what <laughs> the thing that that i i said to someone the other day actually that a, a show that really i felt like was breaking new ground was the first series of euphoria and before that, I hadn't like that kind of to me was something really new and different, and I really appreciate it. So it's not new, but it's that's the thing that I felt like it was groundbreaking.
7: It was, yeah. Uh, Larry Fong, I just saw The Killer uh, by you know David Fincher, and I can't get out of my head. Uh, but I'm not, I haven't processed it all exactly why, but it's it's in my head badly. I to see Larry, are you
1: sure. Yeah, that's a great question. We can come I back mean, to yeah later.
3: yeah i know i mean i the best thing i've watched is has nothing it's like the david beckham netflix documentary i loved it
1: <laughs> that's amazing that's, i haven't seen it uh, but now i will <laughs> uh sandra
5: um this is not so new but it was uh the uh it was nominated for uh foreign film academy with a quiet girl uh so beautiful and also i mean low budget I think it was under a million, two million, um, and every frame is just oh, it got me in the gut. I still can't stop thinking about it, and it's been already like a year. So the Quiet Girl, yeah. out of Ireland,
1: Karina.
6: I loved Barbie, and I hated Barbies growing up, and I hated everything related to Barbie. But the movie I thought was like sheer genius. So if you haven't seen it because you think you don't like Barbie, I suggest you go see it because it's amazing.
1: Mandy worked on Barbie, correct?
2: Yes, I did the um, additional photography and the DI for nice. Rodrigo. Yeah, that.
6: that was fun. I loved
4: it. Oren, we'll end with you. Um, yeah, I, I also I love the Quiet Girl. Great shout, Sandra. It's such a beautiful film. Um, yeah, for the one that I would say is uh, Anatomy of Anatomy of a Fall, um, Palm d'Or winner this year, and it's in theaters now. And uh, yeah, it blew me away. So check it out.
1: Well, just wanna say on behalf of everyone watching, uh, thank you, Six, so 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 much for making time for us and sharing a little bit of your knowledge. I know that uh the, the three hundred people who showed up today and then the thousands that will see it after. By the way, we've been getting a lot of a lot of streams on the Dolby site. I think our last panel has like ninety thousand views or something like that. So just know that, that your time is gonna be appreciated by so so many people. So cannot thank you enough. Uh, Mandy, Larry, Larry, Sandra, Karina, Oren,
0: thank you so much.
4: Thank
2: Thank you. You. Thanks, everybody. Bye. Thank you. Thank you.
0: Many thanks once again to Carlos for organizing and moderating that incredible conversation, and to Mandy, Larry, Lawrence, Oren, Sandra, and Karina for participating. If you enjoyed this program, please stay tuned. We will be bringing you more of the anti-gravity satellite sessions in the coming weeks. But if you'd like to tune in live and contribute some questions of your own, be sure to follow Anti-Gravity Academy online. You can find that link in our show notes. And if you'd like even more conversations with artists and filmmakers about how they use technology to tell their stories, please be sure you are subscribed to us, the Dolby Institute podcast. You can find links to our show on all the major podcasting platforms, including the video version on YouTube in our show notes or you can simply search for Dolby, wherever you get your podcasts. And if you're curious to know more about the Dolby Institute, head on over to dolbyinstitute.com. There you will find information about all of our programs. You can access the entire library of episodes of this podcast, and you can sign up for our mailing list. Until next time, thank you again for joining us. This is the Dolby Institute podcast. I'm your host, Glenn Kaiser. Our producer and editor is Michael Coleman. Our executive producers are Amanda Schneider and Jack Ferry, with additional editing by Matt Nixon. Thanks for joining us.